This is BTS with CTV, behind the scenes, behind the stories we bring you from the CTV Vancouver newsroom. My name is Penny Daflos and I'll be your guide behind the curtain to a chilling series of events in northern British Columbia that put the international spotlight on a murder mystery that would see several twists. I don't know how anybody could live with themselves after doing what I saw. It began with a couple on a road trip found dead. the ditch was a lady first, young lady, and maybe five meters behind was the gentleman. He had no shoes, the young lady had one. Aussie Lucas Fowler was on his way to Alaska with his American girlfriend China Dees when their van broke down Sunday about 20 kilometers south of Liard Hot Springs near the Yukon border. Just devastating stating and our heart goes out to the whole of her family you know we're just crushed a few days later 450 kilometers away a burnt camper truck was found with the body of an unidentified man likely in his 60s at first it was too far away to think they were connected but then when two young men from Vancouver Island were reported missing and believed to also be in northern BC, questions began swirling about what was going on in the expansive and sparsely populated region of Canada. They were driving the vehicle, found on fire 50 kilometers south of Dees Lake. Cam and Briar were traveling through BC to visit a white horse in the Yukon Territory to look for work. It's not clear why they returned to BC and what their travel plans may have been. The dead man near the burnt camper was identified by Mounties as Leonard Dick, a Vancouver father and beloved lecturer in marine botany at UBC. Dyke's family has released a statement saying he was a loving husband and father. His death has created unthinkable grief and we are struggling to understand what has happened. Then came a huge twist in these three seemingly unrelated stories that saw them converge into one staggering case. If you spot Briar or Cam, consider them dangerous. Briar Schmigelski and Cam McLeod were no longer considered missing teens. They were suspects in the killings of the three other people, triggering a nationwide manhunt. Cam McLeod and Briar Schmigelski have left British Columbia and have been spotted in northern Saskatchewan. We have to recognize at this point that Cam or Briar may have changed their appearance. If you see them, do not approach, take no action, and immediately call 911. Well, that's where I want to bring in Shannon Patterson because, Shannon, I think you could hear a pin drop in the newsroom when that announcement came out. Nobody was really expecting that these two missing young men would turn out to be the suspects. I think the, the general consensus was, oh God, they're, they're more victims, and it could be one person or multiple people are responsible for killing five people. This just came out of the blue. I think I, like almost everybody else who was covering this story, thought there was a serial killer on the loose. Like, and I, I have to admit that now, like that's what I was thinking was happening, was that these two teenagers were going to be found dead, not as suspects, but as victims. And so when that press conference happened and they named these two suspects and said these are in fact not victims and they're not missing so much as on the lam, it was shocking for all of us because these are two 18 and 19 year olds from Port Alberni. We were told they had gone up to Whitehorse looking for work 
and simply vanished. And now it appears that they went up to Whitehorse if they got there and something happened in northern BC. And that started this whole thing going. And, you know, it's interesting, uh, using the term serial killer is very inflammatory. And it's, um, I happen to be anchoring the week that uh, these young men were missing um, at the same time that these bodies had been found. And there were some Australian um, news networks that started reporting, oh, look, is there a serial killer on the loose? Look at all these dead bodies. And and there was some scripting that was coming my way that I was supposed to read uh, for our Alexa updates um, on, you know, if you've got your, your Google Home. And I said, whoa, let's do our own journalism on this and not look at what they're, because serial killer, that's a, a term you don't see very often. And then when the police made the connection and then further made the connection to these two young men, you know, to me, it just spoke to why we do have to be so cautious. We can't make those assumptions. I mean, it turns out this assumption was right, which is really odd, but it's very rarely the case that the strangest um, thing that you can imagine ends up being true. Yeah, and I thought, used, I my brain used the term serial killer, but I, I would not have wanted to go to air with that. And I'm glad that we didn't and that you stopped short of going to air with that term. But I just think it was this general consensus among everyone in BC that um, something really big was happening up north, but it wasn't what we thought it was originally. I don't know why now, looking back, it never occurred to me that these two teenagers could have been the suspects, probably because of their age. I just didn't consider when we saw these young faces, two Port Alberni teenagers, that they could actually be responsible for this. And once they announced that they were responsible or thought to be responsible, then we learn um, Leonard Dick was the third victim. And we learned that he's a UBC lecturer. And it brought it home that there was a local victim, not just a victim from the US and a victim from Australia and Lucas Fowler and China Deese, but there was a local victim of these murders. And we learned a little bit about Leonard Dick from his family and his friends. And then a few days later, charges were laid in that murder, all the while Briar Schmigelski and Cam McLeod were in the wind. Um, we knew they were heading east because there were sightings in Saskatchewan, but we didn't know where they were. And it kind of grew into almost this frenzied manhunt involving RCMP from right across Canada. And I can tell you, Penny, I haven't seen a manhunt like this before in my memory, or at least covered one as a reporter that seemed to suck up all the air in the newsroom and it's all anyone was talking about, not just here, my friends were talking about it, my family was talking about it, where were these teenagers? And it just kept going and going and going and with each press conference, with the release of that surveillance video that I'm sure everyone who's listening to this saw of them in the convenience store in Saskatchewan, the burning vehicle in Manitoba, this story grew and grew and grew. And it was a really actually a hard story to cover because when we realized uh, in the newsroom that something was happening up north, we sent Allison Tanner with a videographer up north to start covering things, you know, where everybody was last seen and where the bodies were found and talk, talk to the tow truck driver and all the rest of it. But then before we knew it, you're right, we were relying on our colleagues uh, further east throughout the country to try to help us. But since they were from Port Alberni, since they were from BC, there was a huge um, onus on our newsroom to cover it with a BC perspective. What are the connections here? And, you know, trying to talk to family and friends to try to figure out what could have been the motivation. And, and that really brought an ethical quandary when the one of the boy's fathers uh, was uh, seemed very um, I don't want to say eager to talk to the media, but he was not hesitant, uh, which we sometimes you and I have talked about um, difficult cases and how families often 
don't want to talk, but then when they do, we want to give them that opportunity. This was actually a really complicated situation. Yeah, Al Schmigelski is um, Briar Schmigelski's father. He is the first to admit he was mostly out of his son's life from a young age. Um, he is troubled, I think it's fair to say. Uh, he's had a history with police. He uh, blames a lot of what happened on the relationship that he had with Briar's mother and uh, their breakup and subsequent divorce, which he says was highly impactful on Breyer's life. But the interviews we did with Al were challenging because he said some things that were, it was difficult for us to know whether to put it on the air. He talked about how he thought his son was um, going to be killed by police. Um, He said some things um, about women that were a little bit troubling for me to hear and placing blame for what happened. Um, So yeah, Al Schmigelski, though, was the only family member of either suspect who ever spoke to the media. So we did feel like we had to put him on TV. We couldn't, just because he was a little bit rough around the edges, doesn't mean we can't put him on TV and let him speak about his relationship with his son and let him speak about his anger at RCMP. He claimed the last time we spoke to him that RCMP had never reached out to him. I find that hard to believe, to be honest with you, because RCMP would have tried every avenue to see if they could learn where these two boys were headed. So the fact, if that was true, they didn't speak to Breyer's father, that's very surprising. But um, he wanted to air some grievances. We let him do that because it was part of the story. And part of the story was also their um, online social media presence and their alleged affiliations, which was also problematic because you don't want, you don't know how deeply they are into uh, a specific subculture just because they're seen in some photos or, 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 you know, liking certain pages or whatnot, that that complicated matters as well. But then we'd be remiss not to report that. Yeah, there were some photos um, of Briar Schmigelski with um, weapons and in fatigues and there was um, Nazi paraphernalia. So yeah, it's, you can't not show that. That doesn't necessarily mean that had anything to do with what happened. There was so much mystery too surrounding the relationship between these two teenagers. And so many people talking about, um, you know, the group mentality if they were in it together and, and how that worked. Was there a leader? Was there a follower? We were told by his father, Briar Schmigelski, didn't drive, suggesting that Cam McLeod was the driver. We don't know where their weapon came from, if they had more than one weapon. We don't know yet how this happened. Did they go up north and decide to kill people or was this a robbery gone wrong? For um, Leonard Dick, it certainly appears that they needed his vehicle. They left their vehicle burning near the scene of the first two murders, suggesting that they needed wheels. Uh, Leonard Dick's RAV4 was stolen and found burning in Manitoba. So that possibly could have been the motivation. They knew they needed to get out of northern BC. They knew they couldn't do it in the truck that they figured police were looking for, so they needed another car, which would be really unfortunate if Leonard Dick was killed just for his RAV4, but the reality is we may never know the answer to that. And and speaking of never knowing the answers, these stories are always so difficult because We've seen time and time again how different witnesses can interpret different situations, like a shooting, like a fire. And that's why we often include what are called streeters, uh, man on the street interviews where people recall what they saw. 
It's it's you see it on TV news all the time. In a case like this, though, there were so many rumors and I think I heard this and somebody said that. And then you see it further amplified and distorted on social media. And I, I saw some comments that are like, well, the media, you know, why are you protecting these people? It's so obvious X, Y, Z, all this stuff I heard from a friend. This guy said whatever. But we have to be extremely cautious because even if someone who has thousands and thousands of followers on Twitter does not have the same obligation that we do to double check our facts, to get them from reliable sources. And no, that doesn't mean that you're not going to put a father or somebody who knew them or witnessed something on TV. But we do have to be really cautious about attribution. Where are we getting this information? And the stuff that we are willing to put. And the wording is so... Um, I know that you chose each of your words very carefully, and I think people um, sometimes don't realize when they see a polished uh, story go to air how much consideration and fact-checking and thought there is before that actually happens that you see this story on TV. Yeah, we didn't want to be uh, responsible for even more rumor-mongering because, as you said, the social media realm was full of it. And there's lots of things we heard and didn't report because we really felt like in this case, because the country was scared, especially uh, in the middle parts of the country, not as much in BC once they left, we didn't want to amplify that by putting people on TV. For example, we had interviews at CTV with people who claimed to have seen them. But we didn't have any verification that that actually happened. So we had to be really careful about what information we released. And ultimately, it kind of had to be verified by police. Police got some flack in this for not releasing a lot of information. But to be honest with you, I actually think they did a pretty good job considering what they were up against. Uh, no, they didn't release the surveillance video right away, but they released stills from it immediately. Why they held the video for four days, I don't know. Um, but they released the photos of these guys right away. We had a very good shot of their faces pretty early on. Uh, the video um, breathed new life into the story four or five days later. And to be honest with you, made it a lot easier to tell the story. As a TV journalist, I need to be able to see them. And it, it brought them to life a little bit. We'd only seen a couple of smiling photos of these guys. We had uh, seen some of the photos that were a little more troubling of the Nazi paraphernalia, the guns, etc. Um, and then we saw stills from it. And then we saw them walking through a store. And I remember looking at that thinking, are those two teenagers just a few days removed from killing three people? That's what they're accused of. And they're casually walking through a store in Saskatchewan. And it, I don't know, it just, it was, it was strange to look at their faces. But it, I think that video really brought it alive for a lot of Canadians that they're real young people out there and they're somewhere in the central part of Canada. And um, then we ended up having... I'm sure you recall, Penny, when they were missing for about a week and there was this furious flurry of action when there was this sighting in York Landing, which is a community that's only accessible by air or by ferry, a couple of hours from Gillum. And um, somebody claimed they spotted them uh, rummaging through uh, a garbage dump. And did that not sound exactly what you thought they'd be doing? Looking for supplies or something, because by all accounts, this is a very remote uh, area of Canada. Uh, clouds of mosquitoes and black fly, uh, really difficult to survive out there. Experts were saying that unless you knew what you were doing. So yeah, to me, that sounded like, of course, that makes sense. They're looking for something just to survive. No one's seen them for days. I totally thought, okay, this is them. This is about a week after the initial um, press conference and the reports of the vehicle found burning. Um, and so uh, I remember it was a Sunday and I remember checking my phone every five minutes because I knew they were searching in New York Landing and I'm like, they're going to get them, they're going to get them, they're going to get them. And then I woke up the next morning and rushed to my phone and 
nobody found them. And then I remember covering the story that day and, uh, and putting it together with all this massive search of RCMP in this tiny community, and it turned into nothing. And now where the bodies ended up being found was nowhere near York Landing. Those boys were never in York Landing. So you wonder where that came from. But you can see with a tip like that and what it did to police and the, and the country, how gripped we all were by this manhunt. I swear everyone was talking about this search that day. And then after York Landing fizzled and after they stayed in Gillum, I have to tell you, I was starting to wonder if they were gonna get away. I was starting to wonder if uh, these two teenagers were in the wind for good, that maybe they had made their way to Ontario. There were apparently a hundred different tips of people seeing them in Ontario. So I had started to wonder if McLeod and Schmigelski would become almost this, this urban legend of these two teenagers who were never going to be seen again. I suspected they were likely dead because I just didn't think the survivalists I spoke to didn't think that they could survive without making human contact for that long in those conditions. But um, then of course we had the the boat, the aluminum boat that was found along the Nelson River. And even I kind of went as a reporter, eh, that boat could have been there for years, who knows, right? It was the items found that they definitively connected to these teenagers uh, a couple of days later that really pinpointed the search. And that is what ultimately led to these bodies. And then the press conference, we had very little notice of it. Um, I was quite impressed at how quickly, uh, hours after the bodies were found, they revealed it. And then we were all gathered around here in the newsroom watching as the uh, commander in Manitoba announced these two bodies had been found ultimately not far from that burned out vehicle that had been left two and a half weeks earlier. And still, despite all that information in that press conference, I mean, they weren't 100% confirming they were it was them because they said autopsies were needed because, like you say, who knows how long they had been dead for. What are the circumstances of their deaths? Was it um, exposure or some sort of, uh, you know, natural causes? You know, did they die from not being able to survive out there? Uh, was it a suicide pact? Was it there's still so many questions and everybody wanted that resolution. I think everybody thought, oh, when they find them dead or alive, we're going to know all these things. But there's still so much that it's everyone is 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 looking to see what happened. Yeah, I remember watching the press conference and going, "Okay, they found bodies. They think it's them." And then, yeah, my first thought was, "How did they die?" Uh, because everyone in their own mind had kind of pictured what was going on. And um, I spoke to people who said that even though it's the summertime, northern Manitoba at night gets cold enough, especially if they were wet, that they could die of exposure because uh, I think our reporter Todd Battis said it got down to about three or four degrees overnight. Now that doesn't seem too cold, but imagine if you are wet, uh, if you haven't eaten, if you're weak um, for that long. I, I don't think it's inconceivable that natural causes could have Outdoor exposure causes could have been the cause of death. But then there are people, uh, my husband among them, who's convinced that uh, one of them killed the other. So who knows um, if they could have had some sort of pact. Um, it appears that they stayed together. There was an, uh, lots of theories that they would have been better off separating because obviously police were looking for two and not one. It appears they stayed together until the end of this. Um, they got about eight kilometers from that burning car and that's where it ended. So we're still waiting for more answers. Hopefully we get them. But um, the big question of motive, uh, who knows if we'll ever find out why, assuming that these are the killers, why they did it and how that ever came to be up north. Now, aside from you trying to stitch together fact and um, and leave behind innuendo and rumors and all the rest of it, you're dealing with logistical issues of um, 
uh, different time zones with different deadlines for different stations, stuff coming in from Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, stuff still coming in from the island. You're trying to weave this all together and tell a story for our six o'clock news. But I also want viewers or listeners, our typical viewers who are hopefully listening to this podcast to be aware that you weren't just focused on putting together a six o'clock item, which is what we often do, or an online write-up or whatever with a with a local focus for local viewers. You had demands from across the country since the story originated in BC, and not just across the country. There was tremendous interest in this story from the United States, tremendous interest from Australia, and a lot of that landed on Shannon Patterson's <laughs> head to, to give people updates. Uh, talk to us about what that was like trying to handle multiple requests, sometimes per hour, for you to do reporting for stations way outside CTV Vancouver. Yeah, I tell you, I, I feel like I'm sort of a walking encyclopedia of this one now because I've been talking about it so long for the last, and so much for the last two weeks, but um, uh, local reporters in Vancouver will get requested uh, on CTV News Channel from uh, periodically, you do, I do, on stories that we're working on. I have never in my 17-year career been requested quite so often from News Channel as I was for Schmigelski and McLeod, um, even though I always said to myself, but the story's moving away from BC. I think they wanted to stick with someone who knew the story and where the story originated in British Columbia. So yes, I had to, at a moment's notice and several times a day, go off to what's called our flash cam. And it's a satellite link up with the CTV News Channel in Toronto. And it broadcasts on our news channel across Canada and answer questions from anchors and try to, you know what, I didn't always have something new, but I think I would try to have, um, portray sort of the feeling of the country a little bit of, of, of sort of the anticipation of the disappointment when a tip didn't work out of uh, of sort of what people were talking about and thinking at the time so a lot of those hits weren't so much information as much as feeling um, because the information sometimes didn't change for days they were missing the next day they were still missing and then they were missing some more uh, as for Australia yeah I had never been on Australian uh, Broadcasting Corporation radio before and I was on several stations a day uh, it was interesting. Um, I mean, obviously, they were more interested in Lucas Fowler, who was the Australian backpacker, along with China Deese, who were uh, murdered in the north. Uh, their van pulled over by the side of the road, uh, broken, and who knows how they came across these alleged killers, but uh, it ended with their deaths. So they were very interested in Lucas Fowler, um, and so we would talk a little bit about him. And um, they always wanted to know the very latest and seemed to wonder how it's possible these guys were on the lam for as long as they were. And I, I would tell them I wondered that as well. But uh, yeah, several requests a day from Australia, many, many requests a day from News Channel, still putting together a report for noon, for five, for six. And as you've told your audience before, now editing all of that myself, uh, these were some of the busiest days I've ever had while never leaving the station. One other thing I wanted to add, just because I think anytime something like this happens, it becomes the McLeod Schmigelski story and those names and those pictures get used so much. And some people get quite upset because they say, well, really, it's about their victims. Why are we why do you keep talking about these people? You're giving them the attention that they want. And there's only going to be more like this the more you talk about them. But there's a lot of issues with that, because in this case, they at first they were missing. And, and their families and, and their local police were, were looking for help to find them. Then when they became suspects, they were still being sought after as murder suspects, no less. And then you've got the added factor of the victims in this case. Uh, you know, we heard from China Deese's uh, loved ones. We heard from Lucas Fowler's loved ones. Um, Leonard Dick's loved ones did not want to speak out. Some of his colleagues put out um, a, a really heartbreaking statement about what a lovely instructor he was and how great he was to, to learn from and inspired a love of science and, and learning. 
but when those people no longer want to speak because they're grieving, there's so much going on, we can't turn it onto the victims so much because then the onus then goes onto the families. So it's just a really, I find a delicate dance for us between respecting the families and their need for privacy and their need for some space with, um, you know, keeping the spotlight on the people who are responsible and are still on the lam. So if people think that it's just, uh, you know, sensationalizing stories or all the rest of it, we really think about what elements are we gathering? How are we portraying this? And it's not, um, I never felt um, particularly with your reporting, but I didn't find any of the Canadian coverage to be sensationalizing a serial killer duo running across the country. I, I didn't get that tone at all. And I think it's just, maybe it's a Canadian way of reporting on things and our style of journalism that it just, it felt like a more um, fulsome coverage. And like we were trying to, um, is it doing justice to the victims? Is it, you know, putting the focus where it is? I don't quite know how to articulate it, but I felt that um, our tone was something different than you would have seen uh, potentially in some other countries. That's probably true. Um, the victims were always sort of front of mind for me as I covered this story, and I reached out several times to the families of everybody who was a victim of this, and no, they, they didn't want to speak. By the time I took over the story, which was when the manhunt was on, uh, the families had... Um, Lucas Fowler's father had come here. Uh, he is a police inspector himself from Sydney, and he had spoken. Uh, he never spoke again, uh, except at his funeral. And we did a full six o'clock story about his funeral because we thought it was important to show this isn't just the McLeod and Schmigelski story. This is a story of Lucas Fowler and China Deese, who were that heartbreaking image of them at the gas station where she reaches out and gives him a hug. And you just think of these two young lovers on this road trip in northern B.C., you know, and how their lives ended uh, is very sad. And it was very important to me that the victims were always mentioned. I did see stories uh, elsewhere that did not uh, name or use the photos of the victims. I always did. I always made sure that I showed the photos and named the victims, even in my stories that were mostly about the manhunt. Also, during the manhunt, it's our responsibility to talk about the manhunt. We can't focus solely on the victims uh, a week, 10 days after their murders when there are alleged killers are still on the lam. Uh, as soon as we found out that the bodies were found, we reached out to everybody we could uh, who were victims of this. Uh, we got a, a lovely statement from Leonard Dick's sister that I put in my story yesterday uh, talking about him. Um, and we've reached out to the Fowler family and the Deese family, and uh, they've not wanted to speak since the bodies were found. But no, it is very important to me to make sure the focus stays on the victims and not just on the suspects. So that was something that was top of mind. One last note, uh, we saw a really unusual, I found it a very unusual statement by the RCMP when the bodies were found that they still wanted to go ahead and pursue criminal charges against these two young men. And I don't know if people know how things typically work in Canada, but um, there are only a few jurisdictions where police actually uh, lay charges. In the province of BC, uh, police gather evidence, uh, they forward it to the Crown, the Crown actually lays the charges. And no matter what, I have never seen dead people charged with a crime because they cannot be taken to trial. And in this case, the RCMP made a powerful statement that they wanted to charge them anyway. And I found that to be a real head scratcher, Shannon, as a, as a denouement to this story, because there will never be a trial. They can never defend themselves. So what do you make of that statement by the RCMP that they were pursuing charges in this case anyway? 
it was first made at the initial press conference in British Columbia uh, the day the bodies were found. And I remember hearing it, and I was not actually at the press conference to ask a follow-up question because it was too late in the afternoon and I was putting my story together. And I remember the, the, the commander saying it and me kind of going, huh? Did he just say that they're still going to pursue charges? And I remember that day speaking to um, my story producer, and uh, he was like, I don't think they can, can they? And I was a little bit perplexed. And so that day, because we couldn't get any real answers on it, and because the bodies had been found and we had a lot of content, we decided to sort of leave that out. But um, on Thursday, I focused a little bit more on the statement, and we asked um, Staff Sergeant Choyette, who's the media officer here in British Columbia, um, did you mean, really, that you would lay charges against dead people? And she said yes, that they were pursuing, they were going to speak to Crown, the BC Prosecution Service, about whether this was possible. I asked her, has this ever been done in Canadian history? And she said she didn't know, but they felt that it was an important closure for the family that charges be laid. I was still perplexed by this. So I spoke to the BC Prosecution Service, Dan McLaughlin, their media person who you and I have spoken with many times in the past. And he in no uncertain terms said, we don't charge dead people. Uh, I then spoke to a criminal defense lawyer who said, no, we don't charge dead people. So we went to air with it at five o'clock because we had several clips of RCMP saying we were want to pursue charges. Uh, and then I heard from uh, Staff Sergeant Choyette uh, shortly after my five o'clock aired saying that she misinterpreted what the investigators meant and she went on to say that they want to um, create a case like they're still alive they want to um, present to crown anyway even though the suspects are dead the case they would have presented had they been alive to prove that they had enough so I, maybe she misunderstood it, but it still seems like they're doing a lot of work to present a case that will never be told at trial. Um, the criminal defense lawyer I spoke to surmised that it was possible they, they really wanted to do this for the victims' families, he, but he wondered if it was the best use of police resources to be pursuing a case that will never be tried. So it was a, it was a curious thing to say. I've never heard it before said by police. I think it shows kind of the passion they felt about this one specifically. Both BC Mounties and Mounties sort of across... Saskatchewan, Manitoba, who handled this case, I think felt pretty personal about this one. So when the bodies were found, perhaps the investigators here were kind of like, well, we really wanted our shot at these guys. We're still going to build our case anyway. Will there ever be charges laid against Schmigelski and McLeod for Lucas Fowler and China Deese? No. Our law does not allow for that um, because they cannot defend themselves in court. But it does sound like police are going to put their case together anyway, present it uh, to Crown to prove that they had enough. Right now, they're still waiting for some forensics in that case, but they feel confident that uh, both crime scenes are connected um, to each other and also to these suspects. But the victims had no connection to each other or to the suspects. So uh, for some reason, um, these three people were killed up north by what appears to be the same people. I can understand from the RCMP's perspective wanting to complete the investigation to conclusively be able to say to these families, it was these two suspects and it wasn't somebody else and we weren't looking for the wrong people. I can see that. And I can see them wanting to summarize it or, or put it into a soundbite in, in the sense of we're going to charge them anyhow because that's what how confident we feel in this. But I think in some ways it may have been strategically not the right way to phrase it because then you have to report criminal criminal charges are not possible, which cheapened isn't the right word, but it really, I think, um, put a strange ending to this very strange story for something that the police say that they're going to do, but is 
probably never going to be done. It was just a, a very strange way to kind of um, the punctuation at the end of this very long sentence, if you will. Yeah, and I remember, so our uh, colleague Sheila Scott did the initial interview with um, Staff Sergeant Shoyette uh, yesterday morning where she said that I think her quote was even though they're dead doesn't mean that we're not going to pursue charges and I just went what and so because I wanted to make sure that's what she meant I did my own interview that afternoon with um, the staff sergeant and I asked three or four times is this what you mean because I really if if she meant something a little different I wanted her to clarify but I think at the time media officers basically are mouthpieces for investigators. So she was relaying information that she heard from the investigators on the case. So it's not her making the decision. For the most part, they just regurgitate what they've been told to say, and she's very good at her job. Um, but she either she claimed she misinterpreted or she was told something that I guess isn't exactly how it came across, but I'm going to tell you, I've got four or five clips of her saying, we're going to lay charges against dead people. I didn't make that up. She said it many times. I got her to clarify it. So yeah, we went with it at five, but this is what happens in news. She emailed me at 5.15 and I was uh, trying to edit my own story and I went running to our story producer and said, what do I do? And we looked at the script and we figured out a way to accurately portray the story. Uh, but sometimes things like that happen in news is that um, someone will say, that's not what I meant. And we have to, we're, we're not trying to do gotcha moments on RCMP media officers. We reported what she said. She then clarified, that's not what I meant meant to say or I misspoke I wasn't going to go to air with the same thing at six I didn't feel comfortable with that so I did change the story slightly for six o'clock but I still went with the fact they're going to pursue the case like they're alive I don't think that's common either to be honest with you I don't know that there's uh, a ton of value in putting officer hours into pursuing and building a case against dead people but they feel it's important to the families to wrap this up to give this some closure so it sounds like even though the suspects are dead uh, they're going to keep looking for evidence and building a case against them. Thank you for your time explaining all this and for being so um, thorough and sensitive and, and thoughtful about how you put everything together because I think there was just so much extraneous stuff and I just I look forward to your stories every day so I really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks Penny. And thank you for joining us on BTS with CTV and I hope you'll check out my colleague Binder Sudgeon's Lady at the Ledge podcast combining politics, current events and Binder's smart and sassy take on the big issues of the week. Is there a topic you'd like me to cover on a future episode of this podcast? Email me bts at ctv.ca and if you like what you heard please subscribe for more insights tidbits and the stories behind the stories i'm penny daphos